Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, uh, we continue our quarantine already in process, but this week we've got something interesting planned. Uh, this week I review the Netflix movie Coffee and Kareem. Uh, I finally catch up on Agretzico Season 2, I ch and I checked out the Jesus Christ Superstar live performance featuring John Legend from a couple of years back. And then after the break... We're going to do a deep dive into the entire Land Before Time filmography. I'll explain why then. Let's get started. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. So since there's not a lot of new stuff coming out, uh, mainly uh, with the quarantine, but also the fact that like the biggest thing to come out recently was Trolls uh, World Tour, which seemed to have broke a lot of records. Uh, so people are still hungry for those new movies, and they'll pay the $20 fee. It's just, um, you know, it's got to be worth their while. And Trolls World Tour was something that, that people wanted to check out. Uh, I don't know if they'll go back and do a theatrical run, maybe, uh, but... I mean, why not at this point give people a chance to see it on the big screen? But um, it was still a fun experience. But this week we don't have anything really big to talk about. The biggest thing I saw on my feeds, because uh, I followed guys like Double Toasted and uh, various film reviewers um, on like Letterboxd and Twitter. And the one that um, caught my attention was called Coffee and Kareem. And this is K-A-R-E-E-M. This is from the director of Goon and Stuber, and from a first-time screenwriter, both of whom are white. And it's about Ed Helms as a dorky white dude cop dating Taraji P. Henson and her pain-in-the-ass, piece-of-crap uh, little boy uh, named Kareem. And for some reason, they decided to to name actually name Ed Helms' character Coffee instead of just making him, like, the nickname coffee and Corey coleman kind of laid it out in less uh scrupulous terms uh as he is wont to do but um basically the whole point of this movie is uh, is the pun coffee and cream well what if we make well coffee is usually uh in reference to blackness well what if we make the white dude coffee and then instead of cream we name make the black character cream but instead of cream his name is kareem because black people have, a lot of them have the name Kareem. Because so many black people have a tie to uh, Islam and and, Ara and Arabic names, naming conventions. So Kareem, so Kareem is the son of Taraji P. Henson. And he's played by Terrence Little Garden High. And the kid's not, the kid isn't the problem. Uh, apparently he was in uh, Henry Danger. Uh, for Nickelodeon, for anybody who knows about that show, uh, who's got kids, apparently he was also on ABC, something on ABC called Speechless. But he's mainly known for Henry Danger and the spinoff series Danger Force. But uh, he he um, he's playing this as like the asshole kid, the one who's always posturing and trying to be. He's basically like Black Cartman, and. He really is just the biggest problem of the movie. The whole, like, the whole fact that he, like, this, there's a whole subsequent sequence where he 
convinces Ed Helms that in order to be tough, you have to talk gay. And so Ed Helms takes it to a very, instead of being, you know, like, suck my dick, you know, choke like these nuts. Ed Helms takes it to like, I'm going to take, I'm, I'm going to go home and introduce my, and introduce myself to your parents. And then I'm going to ask you for your hand in marriage. And it's like, that could have been a good joke. Maybe if it wasn't already painfully forced and built on all kinds of stereotypes. Uh, but yeah, Kareem, the character is a is one of the worst written characters in in the history of cinema, and so and Ed Helms is just basically being Ed Helms. In fact, Taraji P Henson in this is basically being a waste because she's just basically being every black single mom ever. Like th th this did not like having a talent like Taraji P Henson did not add to this story to this movie at all. You didn't need Taraji P Henson for this. You shouldn't have had to pay Taraji P Henson to be in this. Like nah, like you can do like she can do better, man. She didn't need to be in this. And, and of course, throw in on top of that, you've got Betty Gilpin who was just in The Hunt and David Allen Greer as Coffee's um uh, super, uh, a detective at the police, uh, this takes place in Detroit, so Betty Gilpin is a foul-mouthed, sort of, tough-as-nails detective with Detroit PD, and then David Allen Greer is the captain of the, of their precinct, and Ed Helms is too goody-goody, he's too by the book, she used awful language with me, so I'm going to file a, a grievance, and it's just like, it's so backwards, in the fact that it, like, yeah, Ed Helms shouldn't put up with the behavior of his precinct, but because apparently it's an all boy, it's a, just a boys club. It's all about dick swinging and being and acting tough. So it's like, like that's the message of the movie. You need to be a dick swinging asshole. Is that what is that what the big takeaway is? Because nah, man. You've also got uh, someone I didn't recognize, Ron Rico Lee. Uh, he was been in Survivor's Remorse for Stars. Apparently, he was way back in the day uh, a drummer boy over in Glo uh, in a uh, Glory, and then he's had roles in The Shield and Guess Who. He's in First Wives Club as Gary Washington. For people who watch that, um, I don't really know him. Like I, I, I don't really watch a lot of TV, so none of these shows that he's on I've uh, ever seen. But he plays the um, a rapper turned drug kingpin named Orlando Johnson, and he's alright, uh, his henchmen are also not too bad, but Ed Helms, and especially the kid, are, are given absolutely nothing to do, and like so many comedies, it relies on improv jokes, so it's like, hey, what if, here's the premise, now go, and it's like, how about you write the jokes, and then we can play around in the space, how about instead of making, Ed, making the actors come up with the jokes how about you sit down in front of the computer typey type on the keyboard and come up with the jokes yourself i'm so sick of this freaking judd apatow second city think you upright citizens brigade idea of like we have to everything has to be improv uh do something wackity schmackity do what because because that's the thing Improv moments in comedy movies are funny when they're built on good scripts. But we gave up on the good script writing part and decided everybody should just 
beyond 20 beyond doesn't matter if you have a script or not just have the actors say something silly and that'll be that'll count as jokes not to mention the fact that there's you know like just abuse um get you know homophobia just all kinds of just the worst kinds of stereotypical lame humor and in fact kareem like the whole thing is kareem wants to hire the drug kingpin to paralyze Ed Helms for dating his for dating his mom. So, and at no point does he ever get reprimanded except by Ed Helms. Like Ed Helms is the only one who tells the kid to puts the kid in this place because he's being an asshole. And then even Taraji Behenson comes in and is like, oh my baby, my sweet baby, nobody yells at my baby. And then she at no point ever says to the kid, hey, you dumbass, how about you not try to hire contract killing because that's it that's illegal. You you think they won't try you as an adult? Where's that joke? Where's that joke come up? Why did that help say, you know, that because you know, because uh, you tried to hire a contract killing, that's uh, that's a felony. You can be tried in the. You think you're not going to be tried as an adult in the state of Michigan? Uh, yeah, like this. This whole movie is tired and weak and relies on lame improv. Like, it's one thing to watch bad sketch comedy. Watching bad improv is so painful, and I'm guessing this is the best that they had on film because I would not know why they would put anything less than their best. If this is the best they had, then no thank you. Like, I don't know. Maybe get, like, if you got, why didn't you get, you know, some people, if you're going to tell a story about black and white interracial couple and, like, I, I don't know, maybe have not, don't have the two white dudes coming up with everything. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, this Coffee and Kareem is honestly one of the worst movies I've seen this year. So I don't know if how if it'll stay on the list for long, but I cannot recommend anybody actually sit down and watch it, even as part of a Netflix subscription. Something you should watch though is Agretzico. And season two is honestly even better than season one. Like I enjoyed season one a lot, and season two is infinitely better. Like, you've got this new um Apparently he's a Badger character who starts off as like, hello, he's a college graduate and he starts off as being the the kiss kiss ass who's like, yes, they're bright eyed and bushy tailed and it says whatever. But then um, we find out he is so stressed and pent up that he takes out his aggression on Retsuko and eventually Haida, um, the hyena character. And when he is seen, when he when he's perceived as being slighted by them. And it actually takes, uh, I forget her name, uh, the hippo character, the mom, who's always, like, chipper and like, hello, everybody! And she's the one who actually reaches through to that the, the badger character, um, uh, I something, Ina, I do, Ida, something like that. Um, and she's the one who's like, hey, you know, she sees that he's got, uh, she sees that there's, you know, she sees something beyond, like, the kiss ass and beyond, like, that. And she's able to kind of, you know, reach through to him. And he 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 starts to really chill after, um, she, after she kind of reaches out to him. And then also, as this is going on, uh, Retsuko's mom is continually trying to set her up with matches. And, and, and she ends up dating... A tech billionaire 
uh, Tonada, play, uh, who's a donkey, is this slacker dress, very millennial slacker dress, but he's a tech billionaire with his own uh, artificial intelligence. And the, mo- oh no, uh, Tadano. And it's revealed halfway, th- at first it's like she's just a slacker dude who's, you know, screwing around in uh, her driver's ed class. And it's halfway through the series that we realize, oh no, he is a tech billionaire genius. And he's got this whole artificial intelligence that he's hoping to roll out and automate the world. And it's like, holy cow. And then uh, as that comes up, then you get commentary on, like, um, marriage being an archaic tradition and uh, late-stage capitalism uh, he brings up at one point. Uh, and, he, and people should, shouldn't have to be forced into jobs they hate just to pay rent and you know he he's very philosophical in that but he doesn't really have the answers he just thinks about it a lot and it's really her her relationship with Tadano is super cute but I won't give away how it ultimately ends by the end of the season but that last episode is a real kick kicker it's just especially as things go on uh and their whole relationship has these weird ups and downs um oh uh Kabai is the hippo's name. I got it. Uh, I had it written down here. Because they develop her character more. We find out more that she's got a fa- Everybody's got more development here. Uh, Tone, the big the big pig uh, mean guy boss, has some more development. Um, he, we find out he's got a family and two daughters, a wife and two daughters. We learn about Kaiba's, Kabai's kids. Um, it's really interesting. And I just absolutely adore... Um, you know, Retsuko. I think she's a super adorable character. I also found out she's voiced by the same actress who does uh, Deanne in Seven Deadly Sins, which was a guilty pleasure for me for a while, and I loved Deanne's character as well, main, uh, especially. And the, the two of them sharing a voice actress <laughs> kind of helps. But I still love Retsuko's um, demeanor, like the whole fact that, you know, she's sweet and cute and loving, and but she's under so much stress from everything around her that she's, you know, freaks out and has always continually bottled up. And I think it's that whole, and I think the way it kind of, kind of comments on a lot of Japanese cult, because there's a lot of that in Japanese, especially office culture. And I think it's a really good kind of uh, parody of all that and breakdown of the kinds of things that you see in Japanese offices. And a lot of offices, actually. It's specifically Japanese. But you can see stuff like this happening in a lot of, you know, like, all of a sudden, oh, we got to put together a thing for the weekend. You know, we got to play nice for the new investor. And it's just like stuff you see in a lot of especially bigger name office office environments. Yeah, uh, Gretzko is still phenomenal. And I can't wait for season three to come out. And the last thing I really want to talk about before getting into the big, big chunk is uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. I remember when this first came out, I told my mom, because um, one of her favorite actors, Norm Lewis, who has been Javert and the Phantom, he's this big, deep, bass voice uh, on Broadway, and he plays Caiaphas in this production. I told her about it, and she loved it, but I never got the chance to sit down and actually watch it, and so I took that time this week... Um, and I gotta say, it's a pro- it's honestly probably the best production of those made-for-TV live theatrical productions. Like, it's way better than any of the other ones they've done so far. And it's it's got some well... It had some great cinematography. Um, the uh, set design and the costuming makes it feel like almost post-apocalyptic instead of uh, ancient, uh, ancient, ancient Judea. 
Um, the cast is phenomenal. You you know, with not only um, uh, I can't I remember John Legend as Jesus and uh, Sarah Bareilles as Mary Magdalene. Uh, Brandon Victor Dixon, someone I didn't really know, he plays Judas, and he is phenomenal. He is fantastic. Norm Lewis is also great, as well as um, Alice Cooper in the, in the in the cameo role as uh, King Herod. He does a great, he does a fun job as it. A very stunt casting, but he did great, and everybody ate it up. But yeah, it's a great cast, and even the um, chorus uh, singers and dancers and everybody did good did a good job. Um, I think my biggest problem with it was the audio. Like, every one of these live productions has suffered from bad uh, audio mixing for uh, specifically for the vocal performances. I don't know what they're doing wrong. I don't know where the problem ends up. But for some reason, when you hear it back on TV, it does. You can sometimes you can have a hard time hearing the singers, especially over the music. And I think that's a big problem. But at the same point, like. That's not the singer's fault. That's more on the technical end of things. But everybody on perform on the in the you know on the performing space of it and the production design and work, and they all did phenomenal. This is a really good production, and maybe want to check out another a different you know see other productions of uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Maybe watch the movie from the seventies. Check out that I I want to listen to that. The, they also just dropped a female. Um, uh, version uh, of the of like part of the soundtrack. I think it's just Act One's songs uh, called "She Lives," and I want to check that out because like uh, Shoshana Bean's in it on it, Cynthia Erivo's on it. Uh, I want to see what that's all about. So uh, yeah, Jesus Christ Superstar. If you haven't watched that on Hulu yet, it's I think the honestly the best of the TV made for TV live action live theater productions that they've done. I need to see The Wiz. I think that's the other one that I've heard good things about. But for right now, Jesus Christ Superstar is the best that they've done so far. And if if you're not gonna bring that kind of game with you, then you might as well just stay home. So that covers the review portion. Well, the main review portion. After the break. I'm going to come back and talk about all, what is it? Hold on. Let me get the numbers. Um, uh, it's all 14, uh, I think. Let me see. It's uh, 12, 13, 14. Yep. All 14 entries in the Land Before Time series, movie series. I'm not talking about the... Um, TV series or the games, though. That, that was Mars Girls thing. <laughs> you. You out there. Do you know what horror is? You like horror films. You like gore. You want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On the Gummy Cat Network. Don't read the Latin. Do you know that in the world of the insane, you will find a kind of truth more terrifying?
this has an interesting impetus for this week. Um, and I, I'm in a Facebook group dedicated to dinosaurs, because of course I am. And one of the people in the group posted a thing about what are your, what would you, how would you rank the Land Before Time sequels? And I decided, and I gave my list at the time, and I, and after that I decided, well, okay, let's check out these Land Before Time sequels. And it turns out 1 through 10 were available on HBO. And I would only have to rent for the other, the last four. So I decided to take the time out <laughs> this week and check out all 14 entries. Especially since I'd only seen 12 of them. The last two I had missed. So... Let's dig into it. Uh, I should also mention that I've checked out some of Mars Girl's old reviews from when um, the last movie came out in 2016. She did the whole retrospective. She's a lot more critical than I am. She's very nitpicky. And I don't know if that's just because that was the that was the style at the time. Or if that if she still feels that way. I don't know. I, I don't think I've ever heard her mention her old Land Before Time reviews. Or if she had any interest in revisiting them since since those uh re since those first reviews because it feels very of the time the idea that like we have to be nitpicky angry angry reviewers i don't know maybe she still has uh some maybe she still feels the same way i don't know anyway uh so let's start at the very beginning a very good place to start and we're talking about the don blue steven spielberg collaboration <laughs> uh their second and final sadly uh, with uh, The Land Before Time. It is a personal favorite of mine. I adore the movie. And it's definitely... Uh, what's interesting is that it opens with what is re very reminiscent of the Rite of Spring segment from Fantasia. It kind of feels like you're watching evolution happen over the course of the opening, just all silently uh, to James Horner's score. And then it finally opens with the big main theme. Um... And it's, this is very clearly a fantastical version of prehistory. This is not an honest, scientifically accurate version of it. Because you've got, you know, uh, patasauruses hanging out with stegosauruses, uh, hanging out with saurolophus. <clears throat> Stupid sinuses. Uh, hanging out with triceratops. Hanging out with pteranodons. I mean, like, we're across the entire spectrum here in terms of dinosaurs this is very much a fantastical fictional representation of prehistory and that's and i'm cool with that i think trying to make worry about scientific accuracy in a kid's movie about talking dinosaurs that's not necessary i think what's interesting is that um uh i i, I watch i was i was watching the uh t her 10th review and she says maybe before time didn't have any of this mysticism and uh I gotta say, uh, uh, no, I, I would not agree with that sentiment, Mars Girl, uh, on your four-year-old video. Uh, this is a call-out episode to Mars Girl. I'm coming for you, Mars Girl, Kaylin, because you're, cause you're friends with Nash, and you, and you get cool stuff from him, and he only kind of knows I exist. <laughs> Sorry, um, no, uh. I bring that up because uh, this movie is honestly could be seen as a metaphor for death, and and the and Littlefoot and Sarah and all of them have died and are on the way to the Great Valley, which is symbolic of heaven. 
In fact, Littlefoot's mother is very much talking about faith. Uh, when Littlefoot asks questions about how do you know the Great Valley's there if you've never seen it, uh, she said she gives the apologetic of some things you see with your eyes, others you see with your heart. And the thing is, I'm not sure how much influence Bluth had over this, but he I know he is a uh, devout Mormon, and in fact actually took a break from working at Disney to go on go on a mission. So he so I think I'm wondering if how much of that kind of snuck its way into the movie because I don't remember that in Secret of Nim, but it, it's I noticed it this time and I thought it, I thought it was very interesting. Um, the animation is of course Don Bluth, so it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous animation and really interesting production design, like really twisted, crooked, dark imagery for the backgrounds. And not a lot of focus on scientific accuracy. It's very much like, you know, going, you know, very much pastiches of dinosaurs more than anything. It's like surrealist dinosaurs. But, um, uh, yeah, there's also, uh, before... The uh, I'm one of the big themes of this franchise is going to be segregation of the herds and how everyone kind of like goes sticks with their own kind, quote unquote, and it's up to the kids to kind of bring everybody together and integrate the whole uh, integrate everybody. Um, but yeah, and then of course you got the big fight scene between Littlefoot's mom and the t and the sharp tooth and the uh the which ultimate which then itself leads into continental upheaval and the destruction of, of the world as we know it. Uh, and then finally into the next saddest scene, uh, next to Mufasa and Bambi's mom. So, yeah. And which is interesting because, because not only are they, do they watch their parents die, not only do Simba and Littlefoot watch their, watch their parent die, Simba and Littlefoot also have cloud visions of their parent, and then tie into that Bambi having to deal with the lost parent, and, uh... Uh, there's been a really interesting fan art coalescence of the three of them where Bambi, Littlefoot, and Simba hang out and grow up together. It's very odd. <laughs> it's very odd, but it's also very uh, ch charming in its own way. Uh, so yeah, Littlefoot's mom dies and he you get an interesting um, like uh, armored dinosaur. They don't really specify what it is. They just call him the old rooter. Uh, who was played by the same actor who does the narrator? So it sounds so it feels like he's been narrating this whole time, and then we actually get to meet him in the movie. Uh, but he kind of advises Littlefoot on how to handle death, and that you know death, you know that just because she died, it's not his fault. Thing, you know, death is part of the natural order of things. The the uh, the circle of life. Uh, in fact, I think they literally use the circle of life. Uh, the the. I know they use it in the fourth movie, and I think by that point, the Lion King had already come out, so a, that means Universal's gunning for Disney for use of that circle of life thing. Um, but yeah, uh, so Littlefoot has to, so Littlefoot kind of deals with the loss of his mom, and then eventually meets up with Ducky, and Ducky is still adorable in this first movie. And, yeah, if you don't know the tr the sad story behind her voice actress, it is just tragic. I think she also played the daughter, the kid in, uh, in, um, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven. And then that's when, uh, the, the, the tragedy happened. But, yeah, suffice to say that it's, it's heartbreaking. And, because she, she was such a great voice actress. And, uh, to have her life cut short like that, it's, it's, it's just absolutely tragic. Um... 
And then as, as over the course of the adventure, they're, they're, they're struggling. They can't find, they don't, they're having trouble finding the Great Valley. They continuously butt heads with each other. But no matter what, they all coalesce back together as friends in order to in order to take care of one another. So after everything, they find their way to the Great Valley, and it ends with this really triumphant note. And then nothing ever happened after that, except Universal took over the reins of the of the series and pumped out a bunch of sequels. So let's talk about those now. Uh, first up, the Great Valley Adventure. There's an immediate drop in animation quality. You notice that right off the bat. It's stiffer. It's not as uh, kinetic. It's very much like almost just almost TV grade quality animation. It's not very good. And then of course now they've added musical numbers. So now every movie has at least th has three whole musical numbers, except for I think the the final one has like four or five. Um, but we've also got. Um, the introduction of Kenneth Mars as Littlefoot's grandpa. Uh, I knew him mainly from this before I even met him in uh, in um, Young Frankenstein and in a bunch of other stuff. For those who don't know, he played uh, the police inspector in Fra Young Frankenstein. He was also the original um, Nazi in uh, The Producers way back in the day with Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder. But I was introduced to him as Littlefoot's grandpa. <laughs> So, yeah. But you've also got uh, long-standing voice actors, Tress McNeil as Petrie and Ducky's, Petrie's mom and Ducky's mom. Uh, and this one in particular, you also have uh, Jeff Bennett. Well, Jeff Bennett's in there all the time. I think he's Spike or Petrie. Uh, Rob Paulson's in it a bunch. And here he plays a role next to... No, him and Jeff Bennett both play uh, the Struthiomimuses, the Egg Eaters. And they have their own song and they're, they're the uh, comedic foils of the of the story but there isn't really much of a story here it's very much like days in the light you know a day in the life at the great in the great valley it's like oh uh, the first movie was all about getting there and now they're there it's just like well now what do we do so the first half is really boring and not very fun uh, Sarah still has the most personality because at least she kind of has a personality. Ducky's just like, yep, 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 happy go lucky, yep, yep, yep. Petrie is the dope. Petrie is kind of a Petrie and Spike are kind of dopes. Littlefoot's kind of a blank slate protagonist, and Sarah's the one who's actually kind of kind of has a personality going for her. She's she's you know she's bossy, she's proud, she's very into three being a three horn and be in she's she takes a lot after her dad, and. Yeah, she's the one with, who really stands out in this in, in a lot of the series. But yeah, the first half is just kind of boring, padding, and then eventually um, it leads into them finding a, an egg in the mysterious beyond. Turns out to be a, a Tyrannosaurus egg, and that's where we meet Chomper, who will become up later in the series. And... They at first they're like we have we're going to try to be parents and raise this kid to prove that we're to prove that we're big we're big and we know what we're doing and we're going to show the kid show the grown-ups that we're responsible we're very we're very much into kids level writing here take, there's a deep drop in quality for sure um, but the second half is a lot more interesting because that's where two two Tyrann the the parents of the Tyrannosaurus chick come into the picture and start rampaging around the valley. And that's where, the, and the kids are found out, except that they don't find, the parents don't find out about the the T-Rex baby, and then Littlefoot returns the baby to its parents, and the egg eaters are chased off by the, by the parents, 
uh, presumably to be eaten alive off screen. Um, and then, yeah, the end, there's animation inconsistencies. There's a lot of voiceover inconsistencies. Like, there's a point where Littlefoot's grandma is voiced by Tress McNeil. It, yeah, there's a lot, there's a big dip in quality for these, for a bunch of these uh, movies. And the next one is actually my next favorite after the original. Uh, Mars Girl hated it, uh, but I personally dug the hell out of it. I'm grading these on a curve, honestly. I know they're all not as good as that first movie, but for what it is, as a kid's movie, this one is actually kind of, this one I actually had a lot of fun with. I think it's the one I watched the most as a kid, because I remember watching it and there's warps in the tape, where you could, where it's like, uh, there's a bit where, uh, Littlefoot's like, it's the Smoldering Falls, there's not any water, you gotta come see. Then, uh, the bully characters, one of which is played by Scott Menville, the voice of Robin, uh, yeah, watch your hacksies go run and see, yeah, run and see, run and see. <laughs> uh, also, Whit Hertford, who was the snotty little kid from Jurassic Park. That's not a, that, that's not very big. Looks more like a six, that's not very scary. Looks more like a six for turkey. He went on to voice Hip in uh, Land Before Time 3. <laughs> Funny how that came out. A lot of weird celebrity cameos during this series, I'll tell you what. But, um, yeah, the whole, the whole theming of this movie is the, the kids have to deal with these teenage bully characters, and it becomes how to stand up for yourself, and, uh, you know, a lot of anti-bullying messages, which are, and it's not very cloying, I don't think, plus I like the bully song, you know, um, not to compare myself constantly to Mars Girl, uh, I just had re-watched them just today as a recording, and she is not, she's not as much of a fan, but I dug the hell out of this song, you know. I think it's because it's like this doo y song, like... There's a lot of sax music. Yeah, there's a lot of great use of the saxophone in this, so it's like... So it's great. I'll tell you what, for the most part, these songwriters aren't too bad. At least, the, you know, the songs may not be, not all the songs are amazing, but the songs are at least solid and have an, it's only when they start relying on a lot of Calypso music that they start to get really bad. And that's towards the end of the series. But here you've got, uh, here you've got this, like, doo song for the bullies, and then Sarah's dad starts singing his own, like, you get this whole rock number coming in with Sarah's dad talking about being tough. Uh, it's like, okay, where the hell did this come from? Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of, but, uh, unfortunately, after, um, uh, um, some meteorites fall and call and earth and cause an earthquake to happen, like stirring up stuff. Um, it causes uh, the water to stop falling uh, into the Great Valley and causes a drought, and then it becomes an environmentalist message. And it might and you might want to and you might think, oh my God, anti-bullying, environmentalism, goddamn kids movies, preaching preaching to everybody. I think it did just fine. I think the idea is just like I think. Going into it now with climate change going on, like the environmental message is is not as bad as things like I don't know Fern Gully. Like the whole idea of just like you know the and because it's not just you know the preaching pre it's not just preaching it's actually depicting people these you know these dinosaurs fighting over the water as a precious resource and the and how much being in a disaster. But, you know, trying to survive through a through the aftermath of a disaster um, 
kind of drives wedges through people. And it's very, you know, it's, it's not amazing, but it, it's way more interesting than what we had uh, in the last movie. And then after, uh, and so the kids, once again, decide to go off on their own to find water because the parents aren't doing anything but fighting. Well, that's a lot of the series, the series honestly. The, the kids go off on their own to solve a problem because everybody, all the adults are too busy fighting. <laughs> that's this entire franchise in a nutshell. And then the par eventually the parents actually find out that their kids are gone and they're just like, well, here we go again. <laughs> but um, this time around, the, they find water, Try, the bullies find them, and uh, the, they decide to run back to tell their parents about the water. Unfortunately, as they're running back, a storm kicks up and starts a wildfire. And then the wildfire leads into everybody having to escape. The kids tell them about the water being stuck, and then the bullies decide to go off and just you know start drinking the water on their own not worrying about the parents just go you know, nobody tells me what to do dad whatever and the and the kids decide to go t t help you know go help them out because you know despite the fact that they're you know pains in the ass and they've been mistreating them this whole movie Bill Littlefoot's just so gosh darn golly good he can't he has to care about everybody this will not be a trait that he shares throughout the rest of the movie, sadly. <laughs> throughout the rest of the series, sadly. But, um, on top of... So, yeah. In the end of this movie, after the whole environmental message and, you know, the issues of... You know, there's a story about dealing with drought. A time of drought and a wildfire and all these natural disasters. Next thing we address is the cycle of violence! You know, we find out that Hip's dad is abusive and that's why Hip is a bully. This is not the case for all bullies... But it does address the fact that the cycle of violence is a thing. And Sarah's dad actually start actually addresses the fact that that, you know, he should not be so mean to her to his daughter, because that means she's gonna start doing it because that all that's gonna do is pass on. That's the reason that's the whole thing for the cycle of violence. And I think after this movie, you know, as much as he's still gruff and I'm a toughy guy, uh, he's not as abusive as he was as he could be. Especially in this movie. He actually does seem to chill out a bit after the events of this movie. Um, and then, But then all that leads into, a leads into a raptor fight. And then Hip's dad turns into a badass who starts fighting. Who, despite the fact that he's a Hipsilophodon and shouldn't, and shouldn't be able to fight back against these guys. He actually does go in and he's like a rogue. Who's like using his agility and dexterity to like, whoo, ha, duh, dodge. Yo, duh, dodge. Dip, dive, dodge. Dodge, duck, dip, dive, dodge, and uh, he then he joins up with the all all the adults to fight off the raptors, and then hip hip and the bully kind of like chill out a bit afterwards, and then the and then they fr release the water, and everything goes back to normal after some time. Once the once the uh, once the, you know the the charred land has had a time had a, some time to heal. So yeah, I adored the hell out of this movie. I like. I think as much as the bullies are kind of stereotypical kids bullies, I think uh, I think it's more about how the kids react to them more so than the bullies themselves. They're more of an impetus for teaching the lesson that you shouldn't ha you don't have to fight the bullies. In fact, you, it's better to try and see common ground with them. And as long as they're not like complete sociopaths, then you should be able to you know make nice with them. 
Now, this next one kind of uh, lent credence to my theory that the first half of the Land Before Time movies followed the reverse Star Trek movie logic, where in Star Trek, it's the even-numbered movies that are good and the odd-numbered movies that are bad. Uh, here, the e e odd-numbered Land Before Times up to a point are bad, are, go are the good ones, starting with the good one, and then each subsequent odd-numbered release, odd release is a good one, and then the even-numbered releases up to a point are, are the bad ones. Uh, because for four, we go right back to being boring. Boring, 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 boring. I did not like this movie one bit. I think what ha I think the part of it is Allie is an interesting idea for a character, despite being literally Rule 63 Littlefoot. Like, design-wise, she's Littlefoot with eyelashes. So you could have had an interesting female long neck character to kind of befriend and maybe even be a love interest for Littlefoot. And she all she uh, and she's just in there to be like, oh, kids raised kids raised in a sheltered existence are racist. I can't have you know, have a tendency to be racist, and they have to overcome their struggles. Um, that's basically what it is. Because she's since she was raised around other long necks, she has no um, history. You know, she has no experience in playing around and being around other species. So she's racist towards. <laughs> I'm gonna say racist, but but it's a shorthand for. You know, the fact that they're different species. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, there's this migrating long-neck curd that comes in. Uh, Grandpa just su suddenly gets a case of the plot disease. You know, gets a sudden case of plot disease. And he has to get this one MacGuffin in order to, in order to be healed. Or else he'll die. And so they do try to tease up the fact that, oh, Grandpa's probably going to die. Grandpa's going to die. Grandpa's, Grandpa might die. Grandpa's totally going to die, you guys. And then Littlefoot and his friends go on, go out on the adventure because the adults won't do a goddamn thing. <laughs> and so they go off to Allie's old, old stomping grounds to find this one MacGuffin flower to heal Grandpa of his plot disease. And on top of that, there's just like, the animation is even worse than the last two. The villain, the villains this time are too comedic. So you've got Tress McNeil as a crocodile who can't see, and I want to say Jeff Bennett is an ichthyornis who is her eyes, but he can't kill anything because he's too small. And all they do is bicker, and they have a whole song number about how much they hate each other. Why? I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And yeah. Then the like the biggest thing I remember in the trailers leading up to this because I would watch each of the each of the movies on VHS growing up and so I would remember the teasers that played before uh, the movies and so like the big teaser for this one was like Spike's finally gonna talk and he does and he only like talks once more uh, in the entire series it amounts to nothing everything in this movie amounts to nothing. Got, got to maintain that status quo. Grandpa Imagine the series F if Grandpa died. Like, holy cow, we have stakes. But nope, status quo is God. Must maintain the status quo. But yeah, it, this, is a this was a slog. And I this was honestly one of my least favorite uh, from when I was a kid. I didn't ever watch, go ba went back to this one a lot. Uh, meanwhile, the next one, while not as good as the other odd entries, I still had a lot of fun with. Uh, the Mysterious Island it has the entirety of the Great Valley eaten up by locusts. A plague of locusts fell from on high as uh, 
<laughs> I don't know, Peach, I don't know. Somebody came down to the Great Valley and said, let my long necks go. I don't know. Plague a locust, eat the Great Valley. So they all leave into the mysterious beyond to find food and find food. Uh, the, 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 the herds start infighting and threatening to split up. So the kids run away to keep the herds from splitting up. That way they're together and they're not stuck with their separate herds. Uh, eventually they run into the ocean or the big water as uh, it'll come up more than once. I will say the animation is a bit better. It's a little more fluid than last time. Uh, you've also got this interesting sort of bit with a shark attack where um, basically what that happens is they reach the ocean. It's salt water, so they can't drink it and there's no food. Uh, but they do find a land bridge over to an island off the coast and they cross over, but a, but um, a tidal wave kind of covers up the land bridge so so they can't get off and the, their grown-ups can't find them. And they try to get back to mainland on a log and are attacked by a shark. So that's fun times. I'm surprised since it's universal that they didn't use the Jaws theme. But, um, and this is actually the first time in the series that Littlefoot mentioned his mom dying. Like, all of the other uh, entries in the, in the series so far have yet to mention his mom dying. This is the first time it happened, and it's in a song. Um, yeah, the song's here, and then the last movie aren't all that fun. I don't really care much about them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the big teaser for this one, especially on the cover, is Chomper's back, and he talks. Oh, boy. Chomper's back, and he talks. Cool. Um... But yeah, Chomper's back. He, he and his parents somehow ended up on this island with, like, no other life forms on it. So what did they eat? Uh, I don't know. Uh, there's also another sharp tooth on the island that looks kind of like an Allosaurus. And, um, they, once again, I have no idea what they eat because there's no other herbivores on the island. Do they just eat pterosaurs out of the air? Uh, do they eat fish? I'm not sure. They never really address it. But, uh, yeah, then the main thing comes, uh, Chomper, uh, them still not trusting Chomper because he's a sharp tooth and Littlefoot having to try to prove to, you know, everybody that's still Chomper. He obviously recognizes him just because he's a sharp tooth doesn't mean he's not their friend. He talks. How many other sharp teeth talk in this series? Come on. But... Then it eventually devolves into a, the his parent Chomper's parents fight with the Allosaur, um, and then uh, Littlefoot and his friends help them beat the Allosaur, and then Chomper and Littlefoot fall into the sea, and there's an Elasmosaurus ex machina, uh, played by I forget her name, some British actress uh, who because she's up, she also has some British, she also has a British accent, like she's almost she, at one point I swear they also they she may as well ask them about for tea. Uh, but, uh, she, t she brings the, uh, the kids back to the mainland where their parents are. And then everybody returns to the Great Valley once the food grows back. So, yeah, it, it's not as, at least, I mean, I will say this, uh, at least it's not a bane to the status quo as much as anything else. And I think it's like, like a neat little diversion to get them to find out where Chopper's at, even though where he's at doesn't really make sense. Uh, the animation is a little bit fun, um... The songs aren't all that great, but I mean, it's better than last time. I'll give it that much. It's better than last time. Continuing on my theory that the even-numbered uh, Land Before Time movies aren't good, we have The Secret of Saurus Rock. Here, 
I don't know if it's because it's a Western and a play up of the Lone Ranger. I did not like this movie. I just think it's a, the whole uh, idea of like, here's this mystical, mythical uh, long neck who saves the day, saved the day in ancient times long before we, you and I were born. But he's also still alive somehow, and it's all about uh, whip cracking. And uh, there's even a country song, country style song, talking about the lone dinosaur. Uh, and the lone dinosaur is played by uh, veteran actor Chris Christopherson. <laughs> This is a point where there's a lot more, where like basically every movie has a celebrity guest guest voice. So yeah, get used to that coming into the franchise. Um, yeah, the main pl- the main premise I can get here is that you know be careful with telling legends because it's nice to have stories, but be careful not to let them like dictate your life and don't obsess over them. I guess because uh, there's also like a freaking taxi driver reference where Littlefoot just looks into the camera and asks if we're talking to him sudden taxi driver reference in a land before time movie what is happening uh there's also a reference of autumn but i don't understand how seasons work in this franchise well how do seasons because we have no this is the first time in six movies that they mention autumn existing and two movies later we're gonna get winter what are seasons how do they work uh yeah but the main premise is that uh, Grandpa tells the story about the lone dinosaur saving members of the Great Valley, despite the fact that they he, he never was from the Great Valley, and that <laughs> that, that that how would he know about this great his great uh, monster of the? Does that mean him and Grandma used to live in the Great Valley, and then they went off with their kid, and now they're back in the Great Valley? How do how do things work? I don't know, but um, basically, yeah, there's a story of a lone dinosaur, and there's a rock formation that looks like a long neck with a necklace full of teeth. And that's supposed to watch over the Great Valley and that if something should happen to one of the teeth on the necklace, uh, there will be grave misfortune on all the residents of the valley. And uh, so we have Sarah's nieces, I think, nieces or niece and nephew, because she's referred to as Auntie Sarah. But for all I know, that that just could mean that she's also, she's just basically the older... um, member of the Triceratops herd, and they're the babies. They could be, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know whose kids these are. They're, ba- they're they might as well just be babies kids. These are babies, Ceratopsian kids, because they ain't no, got, they got, ain't got no parents. Um, so yeah, uh, they, the, the little kids, uh, one of whom is played by Nancy Car, Nancy Cartwright? No, uh, hold on. Which one is it? Uh, what, there's definitely another, uh, voice actor that plays one of the, that plays the two kids. There are two, these two voice actresses who play the two kids. Yeah, I was right! Bart Simpson is one of the dinosaurs, one of the babies. Uh, Dana and Dinah, so they must be nieces. Uh, and then Sandy Fox is the other one. I don't know who she, I don't recognize her off the top, but yeah, Bart Simpson is one of the baby dinosaurs in this movie. Uh, Apparently, uh, Sandy Fox is just a voice actress who's been in a bunch of stuff. Apparently, she was in Wreck-It Ralph, uh, Maleficent. She was in The Wildlife a few years back. She was in a Ghost in the Shell dub. Um, she was a, she was in the she was in Shenmue Three as one of the voice background voice actors. So yeah, she's been in a bunch of stuff. Uh, at any rate, yeah. Uh, oh, she was in Pokemon Generations. Neat. 
Uh, anyway. So yeah, Nancy Cartwright and uh, another voice actress play these kids who decide to go off and see Saurus Rock for themselves. And Sarah is the one who has to lead them to go find Saurus Rock. There's a bunch of stuff about how um, uh, Sarah's like da 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 da, and then it's like Saurus Rock, and they have to figure out where people, where everyone went after they disappeared. So they have to go through these whole logic loops to figure out what happened. Um, but while they while they're out there, uh, they end up breaking Source Rock, uh, breaking a tooth off of Source Rock. They head back to the valley, and the just bad luck keeps happening and happening and happening, uh, and eventually leading to the water drying up. And then so the residents of the valley blame it on Doc, played by the Chris Christopherson lone dinosaur character. Uh, Littlefoot decides to prove them wrong by going and fixing it with somehow by taking a tooth from a from one of the dino- from one of the sharp teeth that they fought on the way to Source Rock, he thinks taking one of those teeth out and putting it back up on the rock will make it stick and fix everything. I don't know. Uh, at any point, he gets he's uh, he he the t- turns out the the sharp tooth wasn't dead, and so it wakes up and and goes after him. And there's, there's a second sharp tooth. Grandpa comes and fight tries to fight them off. Uh, then he's joined by Doc. The two of them beat the Sharp teeth by knocking rocks on them, which is a very common way of dispatching sharp teeth in this movie. If you're not thrown off a cliff, we throw they do the DM the angry DM method and just say rocks fall on from the sky and kill them. Uh, somehow, knocking the rocks on their heads r- unleashes a tooth from somewhere. They somehow stick that back up on Source Rock. They don't show us how. That we are just uh, we're just meant to assume that they. Go. They stick the tooth on Saurus Rock, and everything goes back to normal. And then Littlefoot changes up the story to make it about his grandpa. So way to go, Littlefoot! You discovered the joy of rewriting your own history. Please use your powers for good and not evil. Um. So yeah, this was not a good one. I didn't. I liked it a little bit better than Journey Through the Mists, but not by much. This is not like I said. A lot of the even numbered ones are just not very good. Uh, we go on to another good one, in my opinion, The Stone of Cold Fire. Here, the animation is taking a massive jump forward. The colors are brighter, the animation is more fluid, and there's they're starting to integrate more CGI, which, um, not to harp again on Mars Girl, but she wasn't a big fan of it for her reviews. I don't mind it. I know it's not good CGI because it's the freaking 90s and going into the early 2000s. Of course, it's not very good CGI, but I don't mind it as much because I'm not worried about the overall animation quality. Because uh, I know these are, I'm once again, I'm grading on a curve. This is better than what we've been getting. Uh, but yeah, the so Petrie starts off by talking about how great flyers are, mentions his uncle Toronto. A migrating herd from the cold land, so apparently there is a point on the Earth, on this version of Earth, that does get cold, so they have to migrate south. Uh, And so, during the middle of the night, during the middle of the night, uh, uh, Littlefoot is the one who notices a comet or meteorite fall from the sky with like a brilliant blue light and crashes into a, a... uh, Three Horn Mountain, which is a mountain that looks like a Triceratops head, and while and when he tells people the next morning, uh, you have 
Charles Kimbra, who was uh, Victor, fr- the, Vic- the tallest gargoyle from Disney's Hunchback, and Patty Deutsch, who is a voice actress who's best known for her nasally drone. And she, like, she was the, if you remember the waitress from uh, Emperor's New Groove, you know, Miles, you know, it's your birthday. <laughs> Mazel tov. That's her. Uh, and she, the, the two of them play these Gallimimuses with these um, rainbow colored faces. Uh, and they're like super know-it-all and like, ah, but we're asking questions about what's beyond the mysterious beyond. And beyond the mysterious beyond is such a cool phrase that they thought they'd make a song out of it. Uh, meanwhile, um, uh, the kids are talking about it and they don't really believe Littlefoot. Uh, meanwhile, while they're talking, you hear a voice from the shadows. It's a very posh British accent because it's played by Michael York. And it turns out that it's Petrie's uncle Toronto. And so he, you can very clearly tell that Toronto is not, is up to something because he's got two henchmen played by Jim Cummings and Rob, and Rob Paulson. Uh, and he's very secretive and seems to be very focused on the Littlefoot's sighting because they the Gallimimuses uh, postulated that it may be a stone of cold fire, which is something that is supposed to imbue people with dinosaurs uh, with magical powers. And, you know, Petrie, but with Uncle Toronto back, Petrie is enamored with him, absolutely adores everything about the guy. I'm assuming because Petrie is this dopey little wimp and Toronto seems to have, you know, be super smart and intelligent and knows knows everything. And so Petrie's stuck on this hero worship while Toronto, we find out, has these delusions of grandeur about leading the herds. And he thinks that the Stone of Cold Fire will imbue him with those powers to do so. Um, but as time goes on, the grown-ups figure out that uh, Toronto's back. And uh, so they have to move up their timetable. Ducky finds that out, so they kidnap Ducky. And that's when we reveal the backstory. And in the in, uh, behind the scenes of the first movie, after uh, Littlefoot and all of them got separated from the rest of the herd, they managed to stick together. And amongst them was Petrie's uncle Toronto. And Toronto was very much obsessed with being in charge. He thought he knew everything, and he should be the one leading the other dinosaurs. Whereas the other dinosaurs were very much a communist collective, making decisions could get together. And Toronto inadvertently gains a following. So he gains this cult, cultish following who believe who who uh, believes every word he says. And that eventually, and he eventually gets them killed because he leads them off to where he thought the Great Valley was. He inadvertently gets them cornered by a bunch of raptors, and and we don't see any. We, the only death we see is a Parasaurolophus falling to its death, but um, we we are to figure out that the raptors ate everybody else because Toronto came back uh, with his head in his hands, uh, and he said that it was. He just claimed it wasn't his fault. And they never saw those dinosaurs again. And meanwhile, Petrie's answers to like, it's not his fault that the dinosaurs don't have wings and can't fly away. Oh, Petrie, buddy. Petrie, no. Oh, no. Please do not say you're excusing leading an entire group of dinosaurs to their death. Dude. 
Anyway, uh, the kids go off, the kid, the parents argue about what to do next. The kids go off to rescue Ducky, and at one point it gets super meta, and Sarah says, Sarah mentions, like, every time we do this, that, this, this, and this happens, I'm always stuck in the back, and everyone's like, yeah, uh-huh, uh, so what do you want to do about it? And Sarah's like, um, uh, well, I'm gonna be up front this time. And then the, and then still bad things happen anyway, um... Because Spike can't stop his insatiable eating habit. Uh, one thing I find interesting in this one is that the because there's a jump in animation, that things are much more fluid. There's actually crazier faces this time. Like there's a bit where during that sequence, when after Spike they cross, they're crossing a ravine over over these densely connected vines. Uh, Spike starts eating the vines, and um, they get to the point where the vines are breaking. And uh, he, and Littlefoot screams, "Everybody, hold on!" And Petrie grabs onto Littlefoot's neck, and then his head puffs up, and he's just like, "Petrie!" Oh, <laughs> uh, it's a little, it's really, it's really cute little cartoony stuff, and it's like, okay, this is fun. I'm having fun. Uh, and then yeah, they they manage to make it across. Uh, we find the the. Pterosaur, Tyranno and his and his crew are having trouble holding on to Ducky. They they uh, they lose her in a cave, and then that's when the kids find her, and they have a song about how some people, uh, there's good pe good inside people and bad inside people, and that she you know she consoles poor little Petrie that it's okay, your hero worship is not in vain because he is kind of good, he's just not doing good things. Um... They kidnap Ducky again, lose her again, and the kids end up at the base of Three Horn Peak. Um, Petrie's mom is told to f recruit a, another flyer to go and rescue them, and uh, they while they're in Three Horn Peak, uh, the kids take a rest, wake up to find a whole pile of green food waiting for them, and then they find out it's the Gallimimuses that had followed them. And uh, they helped the Gallimimus has helped them invent the elevator, invent a steam powered elevator <laughs> using th basic physics, using physics. <laughs> and the kids are shot straight up to the top of Three Horn Peak where they find the meteorite and Toronto. And then they find out it's just a rock. <laughs> uh, I got a rock. But while that's going on, Toronto is double crossed. And he, and, and, and Toronto reveals that he's not evil. He's just a narcissistic prick, and that he's learned from his past mistakes and he wants to improve. So he, they all, so the mountain explodes, uh, sending the, sending the two minion fly flyers off to be off, off, off into the distance. Uh, Petrie recruit Petrie's mom has recruited a freaking ornithocyrus looking mother just like coming in and all he does is does the, the like the vulture from freaking looney tunes they all fly back to the great valley toronto has been sentenced by a tribunal to live in the mysterious beyond for five years and uh even petrie is like but that's so long i mean he's not really evil can't he just like and toronto himself has to be like petrie listen i done did bad i have to go and serve my punishment because that's what you do you do something bad you face up to the consequences and if you want to prove that you're a good person you you do you know you fall you go through the you go through the punishment and you try to come back and show that you've improved i don't know if we ever see toronto again but uh then at the very end 
uh, it's revealed that the Gallimimuses were, in fact, aliens! We have aliens! The series has officially jumped the shark! Aliens confirmed! Aliens did it! It's all aliens! Uh, that was fun. This was fun. <laughs> like, it's almost a, a, an ironic level of enjoyment just because of how stupid that twist ending was. Most of the people are probably going to see that ending like, oh my god, that was so stupid. How could they do that? I've, I've always taken that ending of like, okay, now we have aliens. Sure, why not? Woo! Take, take, you know, aliens take the wheel. Wee! I'm, I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Stone of Cold Fire is a lot of fun. That's definitely one I would recommend. This next one breaks the trend. Eight is actually fairly good. Uh, the Big Freeze is um, starts with Ducky and Spike having the sibling trouble. Spike is keeps Ducky awake all night, and then Robert Guillaume, you know, veteran actor and the voice of Rafiki, Robert Guillaume plays a pachyrhinosaurus named Mister Thicknose. And he serves as essentially a tutor, teaching um, the the kids about the the you know life and the world around them essentially. And so it's uh it starts off with Littlefoot being like the little you know nerdy kid in class who's just like asking all the questions and making class go longer. Uh, uh he's such he's he's such a little brown noser and he get keeps getting on th thick nose his nerve last nerve uh meanwhile ducky has has discovered that she has a feeling besides happiness anger she has felt anger for the first time and it's at spike it is directed at spike and it's sarah has to teach her through song how to be angry <laughs> oh i love it Meanwhile, a herd of, of stegosauruses has come into the Great Valley, and they find Spike, and it become the story become the the B story essentially becomes about Spike. If Spike should live with a herd of stegosauruses in, instead of with uh, Ducky's family as their adopt, like, and that's the thing, it's not as deep as the commentary of like you know should white couples adopt black kids uh or any ethnic minority you know any kind of ethnic minority kid with their own culture is that you know should you know should somebody outside of a culture adopt somebody you know adopt you know should somebody adopt kids outside their own culture and you know what kind of damage could that do to that kid when they want to try and find out who you know find out about who they are and they grew up in a culture outside quote unquote their own it doesn't go that deep, but it definitely brings up the idea of like, is you know, you know, should people kind of stick to their own group? Like, is it bad to raise somebody outside of their own culture? Uh, and so that becomes a bit throughout this movie. It's like Spike finally discovering what it, you know, living around what living around other Stegosauruses is like, and if that if that shouldn't be the main it shouldn't be his main thing. You know, should he stay with Ducky and his adopted family, or should he live with other stegosauruses like most of the other kids do? I mean, like, Littlefoot lives with his grandparents, Sarah lives with other triceratops, Ducky has an entire extended family of duckbills, so do, and Petrie has his whole extended family of pteranodons. Shouldn't Spike have his own family of stegosauruses? Um, 
you know, it's an interesting sort of quandary for a story. I'm surprised it took them this long to address it. Especially since we've seen Stegosaurus is in the Great Valley. What, nobody else wanted to adopt Spike? Or did they just assume that Spike's, Spike's, Petri, Spike's uh, Ducky's brother? And the mom's cool with it. So <laughs> might as well let bygones be bygones. Also, once again, what is the climate of this world? What are the seasons? How do they work? Because apparently the Great Valley has never experienced snow before until now. So how are seasons? How do they, what are seasons? How do they work? So yeah, we get autumn, but no winter. So is it a dry, wet season sort of a climate? I have so many questions and the movies answer none of them. Anyway, uh, once snow comes in, the, the first couple of, the first day, everyone's having fun with it. And then they realize the snow has killed off all the green food and they're, and, and they're free and the dinosaurs are starting to freeze and it's up and so it's up to uh the and so once um the stegosauruses the migrating stegosauruses eventually leave and take spike with them and ducky wanting to say have a proper goodbye to spike uh leaves and you know wants wanting to showcase to him that that she's no longer mad at him and not wanting to leave on good terms uh she goes off to find the stegosaurus herd and then the kids find out that Ducky's gone because she told a lie about them meeting with Mr. Thicknose. Uh, the kids go off to find her, run into Mr. Thicknose, who has been ostracized from the from the rest of the dinosaurs because he because Littlefoot had already warned him about the snowflakes falling, and Mr. Thicknose never told anybody. So he took away Thicknose's dignity because that's basically all he had, and as it turns out. Uh, Mr. Thicknose had been lying about how experienced he is. He never actually left the Great Valley. He has only heard stories from wandering, migrating herds. And so uh, Mr. Thicknose uh, essentially became knowledgeable by listening to everybody around him, not through his own experiences. And that's the lie he told everybody. Uh, not that they'll address that ever again when, the when he pops up in the series. But yeah, it... He, Mr. Thicknose had lost his dignity because Littlefoot uh, mentioned that he had told him, mentioned that they told uh, Thicknose about the snow falling the other night and wanted to actually collect it on the ground. Mr. Thicknose um, never warned anybody beforehand. And so, yeah, uh, the kids go off to find Ducky with Mr. Thicknose coming along the way. Because he he knows that the parent like he would be in even worse trouble if he if they found like if if knowing that snow had been falling was wasn't bad enough this if he had, if the parents found out that he had let the kids go off in the mysterious beyond by themselves and he did nothing he would be, he would be he might as well just he might as well just walk off off a short cliff and die so um, they all go off to find Ducky uh, that's where they find. Um, there's a sharp and there's a sharp tooth out there. Uh, uh, they eventually they find a heated pocket of water with green food growing around it as sort of like an oasis in this frozen desert. And that's when that's when that's when Thicknose reveals the, the truth about the fact that he is not as experienced. He all his knowledge is gained through listening, and Littlefoot was in danger of revealing his lie. So he finally comes comes clean, and then uh, they decide to head back to the Great Valley and um, bring all the dinosaurs to the oasis. 
the stegosaurs find their way there. Spike uh, falls into a deep, deep, deep part of the lake, calls out for his mama, and Ducky's mom goes in and rescues him. And that's the whole revelation that, like, Spike should stay with Ducky's family. I guess. Eh, it's just it's just their excuse to maintain the status quo, honestly. So yeah, uh, Big Freeze. I kind of had I had a lot of fun with it for the most part. I think that once again the animation quality is has taken a massive leap forward since the early sequels, and it's maintaining a good uh, production level. And uh, I think Guillaume is a is a, a consummate professional who just makes everything he's a part of better. So yeah, uh, I would recommend the Big Freeze. Next up is, it, we seem to have reversed the polarities and the quality because the next one is not very good. It is Journey to Big Water. And so uh, this time around, there's a whole nother natural disaster because natural disasters plague this planet. It's slowly falling apart and there's nothing the dinosaurs can do about it. Uh, so after another natural disaster just completely de just destroys the Great Valley, um, Littlefoot can't hang out with his friends because they're doing chores. Uh, so he ends up meeting an Ophthalmosaurus, an ichthyosaur, played by uh, Rob Paulson, trying to talk like a dolphin, as best as I can describe it. My name is Mo. Ugh, God, it's such a terrible voice. I hate it. I hate it so much. And, uh, yeah, so... Uh, after Littlefoot starts hanging out with Mo, uh, his friends finally finish their chores and come to see him. They think Mo's an imaginary friend, so they sing a song about having imaginary friends, which is a thing that I always heard kids had, but, and seen it in kids' media, but I don't know that I ever knew somebody with an imaginary friend. I don't think I've ever met anybody in real life with an imaginary friend. I swear it's just something Hollywood made up for kids. It's like, oh, don't you know that you have, don't you know that all kids have imaginary friends? What? Uh, nobody I knew had imaginary friends. I don't know. So, um, it's revealed that Petrie has an imaginary friend that never gets brought up again. And it's just a whole lot of padding because they decide to take Mo back to the big water, mainly so they can rehash that song. The songs in this one are like, da, 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 dun, dun, dun. There's a lot of Calypso. It's at this point that all the songs become Calypso songs and it's terrible. It's like, it's like UB40 for kids. It's awful. And... Yeah, every, I just, there's just no stakes in this entire movie. Everything about it is padding. Padding, 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 padding. I hate it so much. It's padding, and then Rob Paulson does his, 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 his stupid dolphin voice, and I hate it. And I hate it so much. Journey to Big Water is just one I would, is like one of the only ones I would, would not recommend you ever subject yourself to. Um,. Yeah, it just, the only thing it's got is a Lyopleurodon. The, the big sharp tooth in this one's a Lyopleurodon, Charlie. The magical Lyopleurodon. Uh, this next one's got a whole bunch of celebrity guest voices. We got, we got Kiefer Sutherland. We got Bernadette Peters. We got James Garner. It's got a whole celebrity guest of Palooza on this one. Uh, this one is the Great Long Neck Migration. After Littlefoot and his grandparents have a uh, have a weird, ominous dream about something happening, they feel compelled to collect at this one spot. And it seems to be this whole, like, gathering of the long necks, this whole sort of, like, cultural experience that they feel compelled to take part in. I would say Mecca, 
or like a hajj, but I feel like that's too has too many religious connotations. It's more like Longfoot Coachella, only the only you don't have to pay to go pay to take part in it. It's just a collect. It's just you know a mic. They all collect together for this cultural experience, and um, along the way, uh, Littlefoot and his grandparents meet Sue Bernadette Peters, who's this big momentosaurus, I think. Um, or maybe a super... No, she's Sue because she's a supersaurus. All the names are puns, for the most part, based on what species they are. Like uh, Tyranno, Tyranodon, his his minions were named Rhynchus, after Rampharynchus, and Sierra, after Sierodactylus. So, once again, the a lot of the names... The names aren't exactly clever <laughs> in this series. So, yeah, they meet... Uh, and so... Um, after his friend, after he brags to his friends about going on a long neck, on a long neck migration for this big cultural experience, his friends get jealous and sneak out and to join him anyway. And that's when they meet James Garner's character, Pat, I'm guessing Patagoniosaurus. And uh, they meet Pat along the way and they hang out with Pat as they try to get to this big collection. Um, and it's at this collection that Littlefoot meets Braun who's played by Kiefer Sutherland. And Littlefoot's grandpa grandparents reveal Braun is his dad. Ten movies in, we find out Littlefoot's got a dad. And the and the whole reason he hasn't been around, initially, when, initially he got separated from him and his mom before the big, before the big calamity that kind of split everything apart. So he lost them in their original nest. And he went to try and find everybody, and he and he heard. That's when he heard that uh, she had been killed by a sharp tooth, and so he decided. Well, they didn't mention the kid, so the kid must still be out there somewhere or something. He's got to keep looking, and so he ends up meeting some baby longnecks, and eventually collecting this whole menagerie of, of different longnecks. He essentially grouped to find, found, you know, founded a herd all together and became its leader. And they are just a migrating herd of mostly longnecks. Uh, well, more on that in the last movie. But he, uh, but yeah, it turns out this whole time he's been leading a migratory herd because he had to take on more responsibilities and he had no idea how to find Littlefoot. And event like he never really stopped at the and at no point during their migrations did they ever really stop by the Great Valley, and so and so he and Littlefoot begin to bond, but um. But but they've all but the problem is Braun had adopted essentially adopted his own kid Shorty a brachy, a baby Brachiosaurus, who is very much a bratty little kid who does who just does not like that Braun is giving his attention to Littlefoot, especially since Braun had known Shorty a lot longer. And then he and Littlefoot, Braun and Littlefoot had just met, and yet all, Littlefoot's taking all the attention away, and Shorty is ultimately afraid that nobody else will take him. But, uh... Also, this is a very bad opportunity that they could have used... This is a perfect opportunity to bring back Allie, and they didn't. Probably to focus more on Braun and Littlefoot meeting his dad, but I'm just saying, this was the perfect opportunity to bring back Allie and bring in that continuity. Uh, anyway... There's a lot, I gotta say, there's a lot more physical humor in this one, 
There's a lot of like pratfalls and just I mean this whole sphere series is 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 that but this is very much physical humor based except for this one bit where the crocodile's laying in wait but before they step on its head the, Sarah and Sarah Ducky and Petrie argue about it, which rock she should jump on the one that turns out to be the crocodile or an actual rock and so as they're sitting there debating eventually the crocodile gets so pissed he just attacks them anyway. <laughs> It's a it's a cute bit. I dig it. Um, at any rate, uh, as Littlefoot Littlefoot and Shorty are kind of at, kind of at odds over over Bronze attention, and uh, the and the rest of the kids are hanging out with Pat on their way to try and get back on the way to try to get to this place, and eventually the they get the attention of three Tyrannosaurs, and the climax has. Shorty running away from home and Littlefoot convincing him not to because, you know, there's no reason why they can't be brothers because Braun is his adopted father. Uh, Braun is Shorty's adoptive father, but he's also Littlefoot's biological father. That t technically makes them brothers, so there's no reason for them to fight. Out, fight. And um, it's at that point that the other kids uh, arrive and bring three sharp teeth with them. And so Pat has to try to fight them off, and that's before Bra and then Braun realizes Littlefoot's been missing, and he hears the sharp teeth and goes to fight them. And then Grandpa and Grandma Longneck also see that they're fight see them fighting off the sharp teeth and join in. They finally get all, uh, and then as the sharp teeth are finally uh, on the ropes and almost defeated, that's when we find out what's going on. It's a solar eclipse. So a solar eclipse is about to go down, and uh, the Longnecks all gather back up to the crater, this massive crater where the, where like a valley has taken place. And there, Pat revealed at some point early on that the in the mythology of this universe, the there, the first solar eclipse is described as the moon hurling the sun into the earth, and I think. One of my big nitpicks with, um, not to harp too much on Mars Girl's four-year-old reviews, but she goes on a tangent about how there's no way that the sun could do this, and it feels very nitpicky and kind of missing the point. Because it's not, the whole point is that it's not supposed to be taken literally. It's supposed to be a... Um, it's supposed to be a myth. It's supposed to be this legend that the, that the dinosaurs tell themselves and pass on. So... So, I mean, the dinosaurs could very well believe that the sun actually fell into the earth, but we're meant to take it more. And this whole series has been about this. The way that they use sleep stories for dreams, sky water for rain. They have the story of the lone dinosaur. They, they, they're not, they're meant to be sort of this primitive proto-civilization. They don't know the science that we do, except for the freaking alien gallimimuses. The di other dinosaurs have to come up with their own myths and legends and stories and whatnot. And that's all this is. It's not meant to be taken literally as the sun falling into the earth. It probably was just a meteorite. But the Longnecks have this tradition of uh, and this urge to go to this location and save the and save the earth from the solar eclipse because it's just their instincts. Their just instincts are telling them they have to be here as and it's part of their sort of culture. Anyway, uh. Yeah, the final, um, the fi you know, the whole bit with uh, the Longnecks, quote-unquote, saving the Earth uh, during the solar eclipse is really neat. I dig it. And then we have a tease for a major shift to the status quo. 
and they pull back. They do the status quo is God yet again. Um, basically, Braun invites Littlefoot to join his herd so that he, he he and them can be together. And his friends give him this really this really somber, sweet goodbye song. And then Littlefoot says, "Sorry, Dad, staying with my friends. Bye." So yeah. Um, yeah, we're not going to mess with... Sorry, Dad. Status quo says I got to stay here. Bye. See you in the last movie and the TV series one time. Uh, so, But yeah, overall, I enjoyed the Great Long Neck Migration. Uh, once again, we're back to the idea that the even ones are the good ones. Are the even ones are now the good ones after the odd ones were the good ones. But at any rate, yeah. This next one was actually the one I remember being the first to be released direct to DVD and not direct to video. The Jurassic, uh, <laughs> Jurassic, the the Land Before Time movies had been direct to VHS up until let me see. Um, da, 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 da. Try to find what year this came out. Two thousand and five. 2005 was the first time a Land Before Time direct-to-video sequel went to DVD instead of VHS. That's how long this went on for VHS before DVD took over. This is the time. This is the sign that DVD was the was the new king. Um, is when Land Before Time videos went direct to DVD disc instead of VHS. At any rate, uh, Invasion of the Tiny Sauruses. They don't specify what species this is. I thought it was uh, Musaurus. M-U-S-S-A-U-R-U-A-U-R-U-S. Yep. Uh, which is the smallest species of dinosaur ever found. Uh, and all I found was a baby sauropod skeleton. Skeleton. Uh, baby sauropod skeleton in South America. But they don't specify what species this is. This is literally just tiny sauropods. Um... And what's weird is I this plot is a is basically that bit from Dennis the Dennis the Menace movie where Mr. Wilson had a plant that only bloomed like once in a lifetime and he missed it because of Dennis and that's essentially the a plot of this movie where Littlefoot there is a tree that blooms sweet tasting blossoms and Littlefoot it, um. And the kids are fighting over who gets the first one. And then uh, Sarah picks on Littlefoot for being short. And in a fit of insecurity, he tries to sneak a a blossom before the ceremony where they all eat one. Because then once again, this is a communist society. <laughs> Everything must be shared for the greater good. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so yeah, Littlefoot's... Uh, insecurity ends up causing every blossom on the tree to fall off. He ruins everybody's chance to eat a sweet blossom because of his own insecurities about being short. And meanwhile, Sarah's dad has been given a nickname, or at least a first name, Topsy, because he meets uh, a pink Triceratops who turns out to be an old girlfriend of his named Tria. And she's played by Cameron Mannheim. And so 
uh, Tria and uh, Topsy are kind of rekindling an old romance as Sarah has to deal with the fact that she's got a new stepmom. Because apparently at some points from the first movie onward, Sarah's actual mom died. We have no idea what, how or why. I'm guessing probably in the great just disaster as the continents collided at some point. Sarah's mom died in that because we never really see... We only see her with her dad in the final shot of the movie. Um... But yeah, uh, and so it, Littlefoot's insecurities eventually... But after Littlefoot knocks all the blossoms off the tree, he sees these tiny sauropods eating the blossoms. And so once everybody figures out... Once everybody sees what happened, Littlefoot uh, passes the blame onto the tiny dinosaurs. And so then it becomes a, a witch hunt to find these tiny dinosaurs and and uh, chase them out of the valley for be, for eating their sweet blossoms. And there's a whole song about uh, creepy crawly dinosaurs. And uh, the, the adults prove to be about as on par in intelligence as the citizens of Pawnee, Indiana from Parts and Rec because one of the one of the sauropods chases her own tail thinking it's a tiny dinosaur. Um, a Styracosaurus gets its head stuck in a tree and just, they're all complete idiots and buffoons. Meanwhile, Littlefoot has fallen into the nest of these tiny dinosaurs led by Michael Clark Duncan whose daughter is played by Cree Summer. There's our celebrity guest voices for the week. Uh, but he befriends these tiny dinosaurs and promises to get them food because he feels bad about passing the blame and also because they butter him up for saying he's so big. It's like, oh, little foot, you're not so little. You're a big foot. He's just like, just, bu just buttering up his ego. Don't take it in a sexual way, you perverts. At any rate, uh, little foot... Kind of as everybody's searching for the tiny dinosaurs, Littlefoot is staying up all night to feed them, and then his friends catch on and eventually figure out the find where the dinosaurs live. And Sarah, out of jealousy because she doesn't want her dad to find them because he was going to get the sweet blossoms to Tria instead of her, uh, agree to keep the keep them secret. But eventually, uh, they miss a night of giving them food, so that so Cree Summer and another dinosaur sneak up above ground and are spotted by uh, Sarah's dad. And then he leads the witch hunt to stop them. Tria thinks they're cute and does not agree with him. And so that's where they have their real split over is that he, he wants to, he wants to take out the dinosaurs and, you know, chase them out of our Valley, you know, very, he's, you know, he's the resident bigot. <laughs> um, and then Tria realizes how hateful he is and wants nothing to do with him. And so he, they they pile in pile rocks. They're planning to pile rocks over the nest of the tiny dinosaurs. Littlefoot finally comes clean, reveals that he knocked all the blossoms out of the tree, and he only passed the blame on the tiny dinosaurs because he was scared. And so the, everybody hates Littlefoot now, except his grandparents who are, understand his plight and realize that he's just a kid. Damn it, you know kids do stupid things, and it's just everybody's going to be mad at him for a bit. And so uh, they, they accidentally cover the tiny dinosaur's nest with rocks and the, dinosaur, the tiny dinosaurs make their way to the mysterious beyond to try and find a new home and are chased and are <laughs> encounter raptors and inadvertently bring them back to the Great Valley. 
And so the climax has to do with everybody, including the tiny dinosaurs, fighting these raptors, and then everybody gets back, gets along um, in the end. And uh, Sarah passes on that uh, her dad is only only wanted to chase out the tiny dinosaurs because he wanted to Tria to have the first sweet leaf, and he didn't get that opportunity. So he's just channeling his anger into that because he so felt he just felt disappointed and they get back together so then that all ends with the next year next ceremony of these sweet blossoms and everybody gets the chance to eat them and yeah it was this wasn't too bad uh there's a lot more cg in this one uh there's the animation is getting kept way off model we're talking just the wackiest faces in this entire franchise these are just like we're talking like the wackiest kind of animated faces it is so stretched out and rubbery it's weird but uh overall i think this was fine um that's not amazing, but it's also uh, way better than the last odd-numbered movie. <laughs> so I'll give it that much. The next one was where I jumped off. Uh, the Great Day of the Flyers was the final Land Before Time movie I actively sought out. And that is because... And that is at this point that I stopped watching the series. So uh, the premise here is that Petrie's family is about to do this big synchronized event... As part of his, him becoming a, a big boy Pteranodon. It's his bar mitzvah, <laughs> essentially. And Petrie keeps screwing it up because he's they were supposed to fly in synchronize you know, in a synchronized formation, but Petrie keeps screwing it up because he's has trouble flying in groups. Flying, you know, flying in a, as part of a formation. He's very good on his own, but he's not great in trying to do the synchronized event. The B plot follows uh, Sarah's dad and Tria having a baby, and then the introduction of honestly my least favorite character, even more so than Mo. It's Rob Paulson doing his Jerry Lewis. We've got a micro raptor, which is interesting. I'll give the series this. As time went on, they tried to introduce as many new dinosaurs as they could. So we've got, um, so we've got, uh, except for the last one, but like in, um, the Great Log Migration, Supersaurus, Patagoniasaurus, there are Margosaurus as part of the herds, Camarasaurus, all of these kinds of things. The sharp teeth switch out from raptors to, te to Tyrannosaurus to Allosaurus, all that. Eventually, in one of them, I think in this one, we got a Spinosaurus for the sharp tooth. And um, Guido is a Microraptor, which is a species that was found in China in that massive formation that they have that fossil formation that they have uh where it has wings on both its front forearms and its legs so it has four wings and for gliding and so that's they came up with one of the oddest looking designs and then called it a micro raptor because they gave it a beak they gave it a freaking beak this isn't a micro raptor it's a, supposed to be a raptor damn it but um but no, the worst part about Guido is, he, is he's a Jerry Lewis impersonation. He's Rob Paulson, he, but he's Rob Paulson doing a Jerry Lewis impersonation. So his so his voice is real, way up here. So he's got this really high pitched Jerry Lewis impersonation going on. Ugh, I hate it. I I don't hate Rob Paulson. He's doing a uh, he's doing a good job doing these interesting voices, but I hate them so much. I hate them so much. I'm sorry. And, um, 
And so Guido's there to help Petrie get find the confidence in himself to take part in this great day of the Flyers. And then the B-plot is Sarah feeling left out because her parents are focusing on her baby sister more than her. And then the whole day of the Flyers ends up colliding with the B-plot as Trisha... The baby falls into a river, and Petrie's siblings have to save, and Guido have to save her. And at some point, Guido is learned to be a flyer because he sleep flies. He he sleeps walks the night before the big day, and ends up flying in his sleep. It's not a very good movie. It really isn't. I can't. This is another one where I can't imagine anybody recommending to anybody. Just between the stupid Jerry Lewis Micro Raptor and. But really uninteresting. And, like, Petrie's siblings are downright abusive towards him. It's really bad. And, yeah, and then the whole thing becomes about fitting in or standing out. It's just very poorly executed. Just don't, just skip this one. Also skip the next one because it is honestly the worst of the whole lot. This is the worst entry in the entire goddamn franchise. And that is the Wisdom of Friends. If you don't know this one, this is the one with the big, doofy-looking... Assholes played by Cuba Gooding Jr. and Sandra O. Oh. Yes, you heard me right. Academy Award winner Cuba Gooding Jr. and Grey's Anatomy Sandra O oh play quote unquote Bay Piausaurus, which are a type of Therizinosaur, uh, but they're they mostly look like big doofy living palm trees. They are big, impossibly stupid characters. And the whole point of the movie is for Littlefoot to be a know-it-all little dork. Here's the premise. Littlefoot starts the movie by nearly killing his grandma. That's right. He opens the movie by trying to sneak tree stars off of a fallen tree. Despite the fact that there are plenty of good tree stars and his excuses, but I can't get these myself. Despite the fact that he's walking over a goddamn ravine and his grandma has to save him, she nearly falls off and climbs up a vertical cliff face somehow and saves herself. And then Littlefoot freaks out because he almost killed grandma. <laughs> so grandma teaches him the wisdoms, which is basically their rule set in this communist society and every species has variants of the wisdoms and so Littlefoot becomes that asshole who's always a stickler for the rules you guys shouldn't do that it's against the rules he's basically turned into freaking what's his name from recess um God, who is the snitch character from recess now I gotta look that up that's way more interesting than this movie honestly Who's that kid? Default cast. Why am I not seeing his name? Where is his name? Vince. Mikey. Gretchen. Spinelli. Gus, Griswold, TJ Detweiler. Hold on. Uh, that's a TJ Detweiler. No. Um. What the heck? Where's it? Why am I not seeing this kid's name? Ah, uh, what is this kid's name? Damn it. Uh. 
Guru Kid. Da, 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 da. Ah, damn it! I let me pull up the movie. The movie probably has his name listed. Cause that's the, the TV series has literally every episode. Um, let's see. Jeez. Well, I'm sorry. This tangent is honestly way more interesting than the than the movie I'm trying to that I'm supposed to be talking about. I genu I genuinely believe that. I ca I do not I cannot tell a lie. That is absolutely what I believe. Vince, Mikey, Gretchen, TJ, Gus, Benelli, Bertzbol, Fenric, Benedict, Grotke. Why can't come on? Where's this kid's name? Ashley, technician, digger, Randall. There it is. Damn it, Randall. Anyway, after that tangent, Randall, Littlefoot turns into freaking Randall from Recess, being a stickler for the rules, saying, you kids shouldn't be doing that. It's against the wisdoms. And so he nags his, he's become the friend, friends, friend, the friend nag. He becomes the nag for all of his group of friends. So great. He's the nag. And then after they sing about the wisdoms and how, yes, Littlefoot, we know what the rules are, asshole. Um... They run into the yellow bellies, which are supposed to be quote unquote Bay Piausaurus, but they don't look anything like the Therizinosaurus. They're just these doofy duck bushes. They look like duck fur duck cycads, and they are absolutely mentally inept. Like they are absolutely incapable of basic functioning. You're surprised that they are able to breathe. They are played so buffoonish. And Littlefoot decides these these poor species can't find their because the whole point is that um the the yellow bellies are supposed to be find their find their herd and then the herd is supposed to go to Berry Valley, which has all the berries they can eat. And Littlefoot takes it upon himself to not only lead these yellow bellies to their promised land, he must pass on the wisdoms. He has come down from Mount Sinai and must deliver the wisdoms unto the uncultured masses. God damn it, Littlefoot, you little shit. Nobody cares about the wisdoms. Chill out. You're just, you're just feeling guilty because you almost got your grandma killed. Leave everybody alone, damn it. Deal with your trauma in a better way. Uh, so yeah, this entire movie is completely pointless. Everything that happens has no reason to happen and only happens because Littlefoot's an asshole and needs to feel smarter than everybody else. So yeah, screw this movie. Cuba Gooding Jr. and Sandra O oh are wasted. The Yellow Bellies are the worst characters in existence. Littlefoot is an asshole who has to be all smarty pants and drags his friends along because they're not going to let him do this on his own. And then his and then the family has to follow them out into the out into the great beyond, uh, the mysterious beyond. I don't know where great beyond came from. Um, but the, they have to follow. The family has to follow them into the mysterious beyond again because goddamn Littlefoot couldn't 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 keep himself from being a, a smarty pants know it all. Goddamn him. So yeah, uh, I am not a fan of this movie, and this is in fact the widely regarded worst of the franchise. So yeah, Wisdom of Friends. Destroy a copy if you have if you get a hold of it. It is not worth even remembering it existed.
If, if the only reason to remember it existed is to know is to make not make this mistake again. Uh, so after this, um, in two thousand seven, they had a short lived twenty six episode TV series for Cartoon Network that I do remember watching. And what because I started college at this time, and I remember watching it uh, on you know on days when I slept in. And I remember the series being just basically condensed versions of the movies. Not great, but not terrible. Um, the, the series ended in 2008, has been essentially forgotten, not even getting a a, uh, a full DVD release set or Blu-ray or digital release. There's no co collected version of this franchise. And um, it's, the series just basically laid dormant and forgotten for eight years, until in 2016, after the deaths of both Kenneth Mars and John Ingle, who had voiced Sarah's dad in every entry following the first movie, with both of the staples gone, they finally decided that they needed to hold on to, I guess, the copyright or something. They decided to do a whole new movie called Journey of the Brave. And after so nine years later in terms of the movies, eight years later for the franchise as a whole, we get a whole new direct-to-video movie. And it's basically a rehash of every single End Before Time story ever. It's just, this time around, we recap the events of movie 10, Littlefoot meeting, finding, out, finding out he has a dad who leads a herd, in order for us to find out that Braun was leading his herd back to the Great Valley, and apparently he does this, like, every season, uh, you know, every you know every spring, in order to hang out with Littlefoot. He brings his herd to the Great Valley, and Littlefoot um, learns from a new, a new dinosaur entry, a Nothronychus. Nothronychus, another Therizinosaur, uh, this time played by freaking Derryman Wayans Jr., He's on one of our first celebrity guest voices this movie. And he is a pain in the ass. He is an annoying character and I do not like him. He is honestly the worst part of this movie. But this also keeps in, keeps up the TV show continuity. Because in the TV show, Chomper and an Ovaraptor uh, introduced named Ruby... Uh, have have joined Littlefoot and his friends as part of as members of the Great Valley, uh, basically because they need to learn the value of friendship or something. They're on friendship. Uh, they're in the friendship exchange program or something. I don't know. They don't really. Uh, there is a bit of a thing where where Chomper does bring up that there's like a super bad sharp tooth named Redclaw who has a giant red mark from his eyes all the way down to one of his claws and that never gets solved at all like he barely is a i guess they tried to try to tease a possible series villain but nothing ever happens with him as far as i know he's just there he's just mentioned as a means to get chomper over to littlefoot and friends but um so yeah chomper and ruby are playing and then uh littlefoot learns that Braun didn't make it back with his herd because of a volcano and he decides he has to go save his dad. And he goes off and his friends follow suit because they're not going to leave Littlefoot do things on his own. And Littlefoot keeps pushing them to go, go, go. We have to save my dad. We have to save my dad. We have to save my dad. And 
his friend, you know, he he feels eventually he feels his friends are holding him back. And he they get into a fight about it. They split up. Petrie becomes the leader of a cult of weird lizards. Uh, Littlefoot runs into Reba McIntyre as a Pteranodon. And um, don't worry about the Petrie becoming a cult leader. Uh, it ultimately amounts to nothing like most of this movie. And eventually they reconnect. Uh, Grandpa Longneck and Sarah's dad, Mr. Threehorn, learned that they've run off, and so they try to go find them. Uh, Chomper and Ruby join along, because apparently they had to remind us that they were in this movie. And uh, they eventually rescue Braun, who has been uh, pinned down by fallen rocks and surrounded by lava. And so, using just magic protagonist powers, they, the kids save Littlefoot's dad, and they all return to the Great Valley safe and sound. It's basically the equivalent of running a running the entire movie series into an AI and having it write the script. That is honestly all this movie accomplished. This movie did exactly what um, Fantastic did, Fantastic Four 2015. It maintained the copyright holding. That's all it did. And I'm I'm assuming we can expect a another Land Before Time movie this decade in order for Universal to hold on to those rights again. So. Oh boy. So yeah, that was the franchise. Uh, for a break, it's been a while. It's been a long discussion, but uh, for a breakdown of what I thought were the best and the best down to the worst, this ranking is also along with longer text reviews are on my letterboxed. That is a uh, letterbox on letterboxed at letterbox with a d uh, dot com. Follow Corn Junkie Pod, and you'll see my list ranking. Number one, obviously, Don Bluth's original, Land Before Time. Number two, The Time of Great Giving. I honestly feel it's the best of the sequels just because I got the most out of it. Number three is The Big Freeze. Number four is The Great Long Neck Migration. Number five, The Stone of Cold Fire. Number six, The Mysterious Island. Number seven, The Great Valley Adventure. Uh, you know, those are right next to each other. Number eight, Invasion of the Tiny Sauruses. Number nine, Journey of the Brave. Number 10, The Secret of Soros Rock. Number 11, Journey Through the Mists. Number 12, Journey to Big Water. Number 13, The Great Day of the Flyers. And number 14, the worst of them all, The Wisdom of Friends. So I don't know if Universal has any plans to revisit this franchise in the near future. If they do, I'll bring it up. But suffice to say that ultimately stick with the original. But if you're going to watch any of the sequels, I would... Go do the great time of great giving, the big freeze, the great long neck migration, the stone of cold fire, and the mysterious island. Anything beyond those you're, is a waste of your time, honestly. Uh, great Valley Adventure is boring. Great Valley Adventure, Invasion of the Tiny Sources, and Journey of the Brave are boring. Secret of Source Rock is is too as and Journey Through the Mists, Journey to Big Water, Great Day of the Flyers, and the Wisdom of Friends are just uh, terrible, terrible kids movie fodder. So, those are my thoughts on the Land Before Time franchise. And, uh, once again, no trailers to really talk about. Nothing new, uh, upcoming, I don't think. Uh, let's take a look at the numbers again. Look at the weekly release schedule. Um, see what's coming out this coming week. Uh, the week, this is the week of April 21st being the main DVD release date. Coming out this week is The Curse of the Werewolf from Shout Factory. Uh, Ip Man 4, the finale. 
a kid from Coney Island, Party Hard, Die Young, whatever that is, Promare from Shaw Factory. Oh, we may actually get to see the Queen's Corgi over here in the States. Joy. Uh, something called Why Don't You Just Die from Arrow Video. Huh. So, yeah, a bunch of direct-to-video stuff. No real major releases coming. Um, and then on the 24th, Friday, Apple TV has the Beastie Boys story. I don't know if that's a biography, bio, uh, biodrama or a documentary, but it's going to be exclusively to Apple TV. We've got uh, Breaking for Whales, whatever that is. Extraction over on Netflix. No idea what that's about. Uh, oh, uh, that's uh, the new... Um, uh, what's his name? Chris Hemsworth. I told him I love him. Uh, Chris Hemsworth is in a uh, movie where he has to extract this kid. Uh, and, it turn and then David Harbour's in it as well. Uh, directed by Sam Hargrave. And produced by the Russo brothers. Although the last movie they produced was 21 Bridges and it wasn't very good. But we'll see. Uh, Hargrave is best known as a stunt coordinator for the Hunger Games movies. He also worked on Civil, uh, Captain America Civil War and The Accountant. Uh, it doesn't look like he's known... Uh, this is going to be his first directorial gig, but he's mainly a, a stunt coordinator and a second unit director. So um, he's a stunt guy turned filmmaker. Uh, the guys behind uh, John Wick... Prove that that's cape that's fine so that they were able to do that uh so so yeah let's, i'm interested to see how this guy does i mean if nothing else i would hope that these stunts are very good and we'll see about that so i'll have to check this out this friday that this friday that's extraction over on netflix and uh, i think that's about it uh something called witches in the woods by self-distributed -distrib cool so yeah, that's uh that seems to be it. Uh, so we'll check in next week with whatever I can find uh, as we try to deal with this quarantine still. Uh, as for this episode, that about does it for this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by whitelisting us on your ad blocker, favoriting us on your web browser. And while you're at it, check out all of our other fine programming. We've got uh, Once More with Feeling, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, uh, The Family Business, all of Donna's stuff over at the Snarkast. Uh, there should be a new episode of Living in the Stacks out this month. I'm leading the discussion on a friend of mine's book called um, Champagne Brunch of, of the Insectivores, I believe. Yes, Champagne Brunch of the Insectivores. Uh, that should be out hopefully next week. And uh, we've also got a new episode of Dungeons and Dragon types out this week. I believe this is the one where the eggs hatch. Uh, it's been, we've been backlogging episodes, so it's been a while uh, since uh, so, so the, whatever happened in that episode uh, was played out. But check out the new episode this Wednesday. And if you yourself are a podcaster and would love to join our uh, fledging little network, send us an email at gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com and we'll see if you're a good fit. If you want to find us on any other uh 
of your podcast providers. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartMedia, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify. And uh, if we're not on your podcast provider, let me know and I'll try to see, try to add us there. Leave a five-star rating review. Let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. Uh, you can also uh, find us on social media, facebook.com slash popcornjunkie, Twitter at cornjunkiepod, Instagram at popcornjunkiepodcast, uh, Letterboxd has been the, where I'm most active recently. That's where you'll get a get an idea of um, what's going into an, uh, the this the week's episode as I review things throughout the week. I need to catch up on Stardust. I'm popcorn junkie there. And then if you want to help out the podcast, you can do so by donating to our Patreon campaign. Um, there's still the all ten episodes of the Make a Better Movie and Munch Along series that I tried out. And if you want to help suggest show sh- suggest things for me to review or even just suggest content for me to make, uh, if you have an idea of something you something I could do for this podcast, donate as little as one dollar a month and uh, to the Patreon campaign, Patreon.com/slash/PopcornJunkie, and you can help make this show better one little you know one little bit at a time every little bit helps and uh if nothing else if during this time i understand uh if you have your own thoughts i would love to hear them on anything that i covered what what are your thoughts on the direct-to-video sequels to land before time uh or anything if you have any thoughts on anything i covered during this week's episode send that talk to me on social media or send me a message at at uh, popcorn junkie podcast at gmail.com and i'll get back to you privately or if you want me to address it on the mic uh just let me know that is it for this week's episode until next time i'm john bailey and i'm losing my damn voice uh i'm i'm voice can't take it anymore i'm gonna take a break The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. So Pat tells this story because it's not supposed to be taken literally. It's supposed to just be a story. Sorry, there's an ant here and I'm trying to protect my food.